I think being the uh, VBS director would be a cool job, not the least of which you get to work uh, closely with Audrey. And uh, if you need some energy, maybe it's contagious and uh, it, might, it might rub off on you. Um, <clears throat> if you're one of the uh, tiny percentage of people in the world who's on Twitter, uh, you, would, you would know that um, there, at least the people I follow, um, there's been a bit of a controversy this year uh, over something really dumb, which is most of the controversies on Twitter are pretty dumb. Um, <clears throat> every January, late December, early January, you will see a lot of tweets about people and Bible reading plans where, you know, at the beginning of the year, you set out there are these plans where you can read through the Bible in a whole year, right? Uh, it's a good thing. I've done it a couple of times. Uh, uh, McShane has a, a plan. There are a, a variety of them, and, and they're good, and they're very helpful. Now, people push back against them because, you know, it can be kind of, you know, we're human beings, and so we can take any good thing and make it a bad thing. So, no doubt we could take Bible reading and, and, and make it a bad thing. But uh, one of the reasons why I think it's a good thing to do that is because if you have a discipline where you have to read through the whole Bible, then you're going to read portions of the Bible that you would not normally read. Because what do we tend to do is we tend to, we have our go-to passages, our go-to places in the scriptures that make us feel good or encourage us. And you know, that's part of what the scripture's for, but there are also parts of the Bible that we, like, you know, I'm not really interested in that. And it's not just the genealogies, you know, the begats, uh, but it's also things that are hard. You know, I don't want to read something hard. Life's hard enough as it is. Same thing's true if you preach through books of the Bible, you get to passages that are hard. We got one today. And um, so before I read uh, today's passage, let me pray, and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll jump in on that. Lord, we thank you today that, uh, as we've already sung, it is your mercy to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Um, left to our own devices, we would be blind and deaf and have hearts of stone but you will not allow that. And so you open us, you give us hearing, and you soften us. Do that work. In us today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So uh, Romans 1, 18 to 32, uh, Paul has just told the Romans that he's not ashamed of the gospel, that it is the power of God. And uh, now he's going to talk about why... It is absolutely essential, uh, in fact, it's a matter of life and death, uh, that we experience fully this power of God in Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 18 to 32, this is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. You can just imagine Paul dictating this letter, just reeling off this list one after another, right? They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So this time of year, one of the things that I love to do, one of the things that I uh, seek out is the opportunity to go out into rural places where there aren't as many street lights or house lights or other lights that, and on clear nights, because of the the sky seems clearer in the winter time to me than it does, although today's not like that, but it's usually clearer, and so the stars seem to shine brighter. You know, they're just very vivid. You just see them in, uh, uh, you know, they're always shining that bright, but without all the other lights around to see them against a darker backdrop, they just seem so much more beautiful and, and so much more interesting to look at. And so, you know, when we look into the night sky and we look at the stars, one of the things that we, I do anyway is I look at the star and I see those stars shining in the darkness and I think, ah, I'm like a star. I'm a light shining in the darkness. I'm the light, not the darkness. And as I've thought about that, I mean, that's a temptation that we, uh, uh, that we, we all have, right? But the thing that's interesting about it is there is some spiritual value into looking into the night sky, looking into the darkness, and looking for light. But don't look at the stars and think you're a star. Look at the moon. Not because it's bigger or easier to see, but the moon appears to shine, doesn't it? But the moon doesn't shine. It reflects, right? Um, 
you know, when I was in college, I was a science idiot, and so uh, I took astronomy, which was, you know, the kind of liberal arts science uh, requirement after, you know, everybody in my class was pre-med the first semester, and chemistry and physics talked me out of that. And, um, and so in astronomy, you just learn how brilliant the sun is and how when we look to the moon at night, it's simply reflecting the light coming from someone else. In and of itself, the moon has no light. That's who we are as we look at this text. Thanks be to God, we have a bright sun in Jesus Christ who reflects his glory in what would otherwise be a dark and dead piece of rock. But he does that work in us. And so as, we, as I begin this passage today, one of the things I want to tell you right off at the very beginning as we look at this is don't put yourself in the position of being a spin doctor. You know what a spin doctor is? That's not a, a medical uh, term. It's a political term. Do you ever, and I'm not recommending this, but do you ever watch those political debates uh, that we have every four years? They're just amazing. Uh, and one of the things that's always amazing to me about it is, is when you're, you, you know, we, we all watch it with, you know, kind of excitement because we really want to see a train wreck. We really want to see something terrible happen. We want to see somebody make a big mistake, especially the other guy. We want to see him say something really stupid and idiotic so that we can all talk about it, right? And so the spin doctors are the people that work for the idiot that are there after it talking to the press to say, our guy might be an idiot, but he's not as big an idiot as that guy. Let me tell you all the stupid things that guy has said. Look at that. Don't look at this. What Paul's doing here in this text is, as we've said a couple of times, is that at the end of chapter 3, as he gives this tremendous catalog of human depravity, is that he wants to leave every single one of us without excuse. In fact, what he says is he wants to shut our mouths before God so that we have no other boast except Jesus Christ. And that's the whole point of this, because the fact is, as Paul says, he is not ashamed of the gospel, that it is the very power of God for salvation to all who believe what he is getting at here is the fact that we are caught in this web of our own making and of our own sin, and that not only are we caught in it, not only are we stuck in it, but there is no bootstrap spirituality that says you can reach down and pull yourself out of this. God must come all the way to us in Jesus Christ. He must not only come all the way to us in Jesus Christ, but he must do the work that is absolutely impossible for us. And that work includes not only living a life we could never live that becomes ours, but it's also the fact that by virtue of his death for us, he 
transfers us from this realm that we're, we read about here this morning by turning away the wrath of God, the just anger of God against our sin. And that's why we have to grapple with the bad news of our sin and our depravity to come to grips with the beautiful news of what God has done for us in Christ. I came across this uh, quotation a few years ago from uh, Rosaria uh, Butterfield, and I think it's a good place for us to start this morning, is the moral anesthetic. And you know what an anesthetic is? That's what the dentist puts in your gum before he drills on your teeth, right? To, To make it numb. It is the moral anesthetic of our day to ask God and our friends to only understand our sin from our point of view. This mindset of seeing sin from a personal point of view has led to, at best, weak Christians crippled by sin and untouched by gospel power, or at worst, wolves in sheep's clothing who hunker down with offices in the church, teaching feeble sheep a perverted catechism, one that renders sin grace and grace sin. One that confuses doubt with intelligence and skepticism with renewed hope. When we live by the belief that sin is best discerned from our own point of view, we cannot help but develop a theology of excuse righteousness. I love that one. That's a new one to me, excuse righteousness. That's my favorite righteousness, you know, because, or gaslight righteousness, you know, the fact that I can say, you know, no, I'm, yeah, if you only knew, you would grant me an indulgence of my sin, right? We become anesthetized to the reality of our own sin. One consequence of this moral anesthesia is the belief that you are in good standing with God if you give to him what the desires of your flesh can spare. That's quite a sentence. But sin, biblically rendered, is both a crime and a disease requiring both the law of God and his grace to apply to it for true help. So I think that's kind of a good opening kind of summary for us as we unpack this, you know, tremendous work, deep and comprehensive work that Paul is doing on the gospel for us. Uh, here in this text. So let's dive into Romans 1, right? So Paul begins by telling us, after the, the gospel's the power of God, he tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So and, and ungodliness and, un, uh, or, uh, and unrighteousness of men. So what, what he's getting at there is something that's comprehensive. And in other words, the righteous anger of God is revealed against our vertical sins, that is, the sin of uh, disobeying the the greatest commandment, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And then it manifests itself in uh, sins against others, right? Not loving others uh, as we love ourselves. That's what uh, he means by not only ungodliness, but unrighteousness, right? So uh, how does this happen? And, And and, and why does this happen? Well, what he gets at here is that the root of every sin, and I want you to hear this, the root of every single sin 
that every single human has ever struggled with or committed resides here, first and foremost. Now, we tend to think about sin as as, uh, this thing of like temptation or falling prey to things or, uh, you know, we're caught in this situation and we didn't have any other choice but to sin. But what Paul says here is something profound. And I remember the first time I really discovered this and really heard this as a a first-year seminary student, I was undone. Because what Paul says here is, is that what happens in our sin is an exchange. Now, the gospel is all about exchanges, right? Uh, Jesus exchanges our unrighteousness for his righteousness. He exchanges his death for our life. You know, there's a a series of exchanges. But the sinful exchange that we we make that Paul gets to here is, is that human beings exchange God for what God has made. Right? So we prefer the creature to the creator. And this is at root of every single sin we commit, right? Um, and, 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 and here's the thing about that is, that, and, and this is what makes this so challenging and so difficult, is this, that the things that God has made are very good. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. Sex, food, drink, relationships. These things are beautiful. They're wonderful. They are tremendous gifts. They're, the, the fact that God has made us with pleasure centers and has made us to appreciate beauty and appreciate uh, the, the wonder that is all of these things that are in creation uh, uh, around us But what happens to us is we begin the process, as he says here, of suppressing the truth. And the way that begins is we would rather, we would prefer to give our hearts to, we would prefer to give our worship to something that's created, something that we can control, something that we are in charge of. And rather than looking beyond that and seeing that these good gifts actually have their source in the creator. And so, you know, when you think about idol worship and you think about worshiping creatures, we tend to think about people bowing down to statues of suns or moons or frogs or dragons or whatever your particular uh, uh, desirable thing is. But the fact is this happens to us over and over and over and over again, and that we give ourselves to these things, right? And so by exchanging real worship for the real God, we have a counterfeit worship of a counterfeit God that we think we can control, that we are the autonomous Lord over, actually, and we believe that those things will give us life. They will never give us life. And so what Paul means here when he says that the wrath of God is revealed against all of this, when we hear the words, the wrath of God, we tend to mock that, don't we? We tend to to kind of make fun of that because what we think of as the wrath of God is God zapping somebody or fire and brimstone and those sorts of things, which in a sense, no doubt, is the wrath of God. But what, what Paul says here is 
that the wrath of God is, is demonstrated against this drive to worship the creature over the creator by doing something that we would never dream that God would do. And that is, he gives us over to that. You prefer this? Here, you can have it. You want as your God this created thing? Here. Enjoy, right? And so, so what the wrath of God that he's getting at here is primarily demonstrated to us by handing us over to what we prefer. We desire to make meaning of our own lives on our own terms based on the preciousness of our own feelings, right? Uh, and, you know, there's, there's nothing any more important in the world than my feelings. There's nothing any more important in the world than my, uh, uh, my own uh, perspective of how this is supposed to work. Next slide. So as, as we do this internally, what happens is we act out externally and bodily in our relationships, a dramatization of the internal spiritual condition of the fallen human soul, namely the horrendous exchange of God for man and the images of our power, right? Now, you may think, I don't worship anything like that at all. Well, let me, let me just give you a couple of examples of the, one of the ways that I think reveals some of uh, the way in which uh, we do this. One is, if you don't get what you want, or if you don't get what you deserve, are you completely undone, right? Also, I think one of the things that, that happens uh, for us in, in this sort of thing is that we begin to think, you know, the, the, the creature that we tend to prefer the most is ourselves. Our own proclivities, our own perspective, our own way of processing the data that comes to us. And so we place ourselves in control of these things without seeing and recognizing first and foremost that we are just creatures and that we are accountable to our creator. And so because we can't stand the thought that we might be accountable to our creator, to this God, uh, whom we cannot control, who we cannot bend to our will, who is, uh, as C.S. Lewis would say, you know, he's not safe, but he is good. And so what we do with that is we suppress this truth that the creation is singing to us about the power and the grace and the love of God that is clearly manifest all around us. So we, we suppress that, and as a result of that, we don't worship him, or as Paul says here, we don't thank him, right? And that would make sense, right? If you take a good gift of God and you make that your, your, your God, that becomes the meaning of your life, the purpose of your life, then why would you thank God for this thing that you think is the only source of your life, right? We don't, we don't thank him for it. We actually end up worshiping the thing rather than him. Now, underlying all of what Paul is saying here is something that's true of all human beings, and it's this, that we were created not just to be creative and not just to have relationship and not just to uh, be and do these things. All those, those, those things are true to us. At our core, human beings are built for one thing, 
And that is we are built for worship. So we're created to worship something or someone. Uh, Now we choose by suppressing the knowledge that we have by virtue of creation to worship something or someone we're more comfortable with, right? So it's an interesting thing, right, that, that we do this. That, and, and so because we can't stand the thought of that, we suppress it. We push it down. We move it out of the way. We don't want to think about it. The most embarrassed I've ever been was taking one of my children to the doctor when they were three years old. They were sick, had a fever, didn't feel good. And our doctor at that time, the kid's doctor, was very kind, gentle, soft-spoken, which was why we went to him. But this wasn't going to work. Because Shelby's are willful, smart aleck, hard people, especially when we're sick. And so the doctor was trying to get her to open her mouth to look at her throat. And first of all, she wouldn't open her mouth. Mm-mm, not going to do it. Now, I, you know, I'll cut her some slack. I'll do some excuse righteousness here. I think think her throat hurt, and I think she didn't want to be bothered. So he's got the tongue depressor, the suppressor, that thing that looks like a popsicle stick, except it's like three times bigger than a popsicle stick, and he's trying to push her tongue down, right, to look back in her throat. And so when she finally opens her mouth, because I think she realized if I don't open my mouth, we're never leaving this place, and so she opens her mouth, He depresses her tongue, and she bites the tongue depressor in two. At which point I decided, you know what? If you feel good enough to bite the tongue depressor in two, we don't need to be in the doctor's office. We're going to treat you with some Tylenol and some cough medicine, and I am going to get out of here because I am so embarrassed. Because what parent? has a kid who will do that to a doctor. I do. That's me, right? So, so the fact is, you know, we, we suppress things to move them out of the way so that they're no longer obstacles to our pursuit of what we want. And so we, our thinking becomes, if I am accountable to this God, I don't want to be that. I'd rather be only accountable to myself and to my own understanding of myself. Next slide. And so what happens as a result of this is our minds get darkened uh, and that we become caught in this web of darkness so that all we can see and that all we can think about is ourselves. And as a result of that, our desires become confused and they become overwhelming. And in fact, the, the, the word that Paul uses here to describe our desires are like over-desires, uh, overwhelming, compulsions, desires, uh, to look after ourselves and to get what we want. 
We become, as a result of this, in this great catalog of sins here, disintegrated in all of our relationships. And here's the kicker in all this, is that all sexual sin begins in the suppression of our knowledge of God. All of these sins, when you gossip this week, when you slandered someone this week, when you disdained someone this week, it all began with the suppression of our knowledge of God. And so further evidence of the way this works is that when confronted with our depravity, our debased mind, we rush to condemn the perversion that we see in someone else rather than seeing our connection to that person we can consider uh, uh, caught up in perversion uh, rather than looking at ourselves and seeing the connection that we have all across the human race because we have fellowship with every human being, not just because we're human beings, not just because we're all created in the image of God, but, but because outside of Christ, outside of his work, outside of the mercy of God, we are all like this. Right? And what makes this even worse for us is, is that we don't even know, we don't even acknowledge sin, our sin, to be sin. One diff very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me, at least not initially, right? <laughs> right? Uh, my sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. My heart is an idol factory and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Now, you may say, oh, no, I hate my sin. Well, the, ultimately, we do, and that's a good thing. But you and I would never sin if we didn't find it, at least initially, life-giving or pleasurable to us in some way. Or at the very least, we believe that it is going to give to us life, or we believe that it is going to give to us some desire that we are yearning for, right? And so we get so confused in our own minds, it's, it's like, uh, you know, you're dying of thirst, and what do you do? You drink salt water when you're out there on that raft on the ocean, thinking that this is what's going to uh, solve your thirst, when in reality, it will kill you. It will just kill you quicker, right? And so that's, that's, that's the web, that's the mess, that's the mire that we find ourselves caught in. And that's why Paul says that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot of our own volition and our own will be able to reach up and grab onto the life preserver. God must do all of that. It is his work because left to our own devices, human depravity is so strong. And, and, and let me just say, you're, we're not as bad as we could be. Thanks, thanks be to God. But the fact is, our autonomy, our drive to worship something other than the one who is only worthy of our worship catches us in this situation where we are utterly, totally dead and lost, right? 
That's why Paul has just said that I'm, I'm, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So salvation is first and foremost, from beginning to end, the work of God on our behalf. Even our faith, to have our eyes opened, our ears opened, and our hearts softened to this, is a work of God, that he must do that on us, in us, and for us. And what's even more profound about this is, is that this salvation that we're seeking, this salvation that we're looking for, must come from outside of us. It must come from somewhere else, because we cannot devise our own way of saving ourselves. I've used this illustration a million times, and so if you've been here for 30 years, bear with me, you've heard it before, you can, you can uh, uh, well... When Marty was first teaching school back in North Carolina in the early 80s, there was a movie that came out. You may have heard of it. It's called E.T., The Extraterrestrial. And it is a cute story, a lovely story. Um, you know, it was, it was such a hard thing at the little, tiny, little Christian school she taught at because, you know, you weren't supposed to bring logos from the world in, but everybody had an E.T. lunchbox and everybody had an E.T. cap and a backpack and all of that kind of stuff. It was just overwhelming. And, she, you know, I said to her, I'm like, well, you know, E.T. Is, is a redemptive story. It's the story of the gospel. What? Yeah, there's this family disintegrating, falling apart, and not doing very well at all. And this unassuming, small, not very attractive being enters into their world. And he teaches them how to love, weirdly, so weird. Um, he heals. He dies so that someone else might live. And he rises from death. He ascends into heaven. And he's going to come back. That's a dumb illustration. But what it says to me is the fact is that we know we're lost. And we know that we cannot save ourselves. And we know that we are caught in this web of depravity. And so the fact is, we need a righteousness and a savior outside of ourselves. So what does Paul say to us? Why, why in the world would Paul say to the Romans that he wants to come to them to preach to them the good news? Why would he say to them that he wants to come to them and reap a harvest uh, among the people that are there in Rome? <clears throat> Why would he want to do this? Why would he find that this is uh, such uh, a key and important thing for him and begin his proclamation of the gospel this way? Well, what he says is this, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. 
For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, right? So the fact of the matter is, Jews and Gentiles, that's a pretty comprehensive statement, right? That we're all caught under this. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, let me just say here, I, these words are in italics because I didn't write these words. Uh, these, these are uh, God's words, right? Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So what are we uh, to make of this, and how are we to think about this? Well, here's the thing. God knows this about us. He is active and aware that we are caught in this web, and he can't stand it. And so, what does he do? Well, he brings us a savior. He enters into our world. But not only does he enter into our world, he doesn't enter into our world so much to show us a better way. He doesn't enter into our world to show us how to do things better. He enters our world and takes upon himself the wrath that is due this uh, compulsion this web of autonomy that we find ourselves caught in. And what does he do? He lives a life we could never live and dies our death to redeem us, right? He changes the narrative. We are not left alone in our sin. And thanks be to God, we're not left alone to our preferences, right? We're not left to get what we, in and of ourselves, would seek to give our lives to. He intervenes, comes into this world, and exchanges our preference, our autonomy, our willingness to uh, um, excuse righteousness as our righteousness. And what does he do? He dies our death and rises again for us. You see, the gospel really is good news, but it's only good news if you and I see and acknowledge the fact that we could not save ourselves, and in fact, we don't even deserve the grace of God that is demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. If you're standing in the pool next summer in the three-foot section, 
and the lifeguard jumps off of their lifeguard stand and throws that big foam rubber thing at you and drags you out of the pool, you're going to think, what an idiot, right? I'm just fine. But if you're a three-year-old and you dive into the 16-foot section of the pool thinking that you're just fine, which is the way most of us are, that salvation that we receive from that, that life-giving, that life restoration means everything. And so when we come to the table today, what we are recognizing and what we are uh, rejoicing in is the fact that in our utter need, even a need that we didn't fully understand ourselves, God understood it and he intervened in Jesus Christ. The disciples prepared the Passover and when it was evening, Jesus came with the 12 and they were reclining at the table and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's confess our sins. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there's no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. 